From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, the only official podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry. And for this edition, it's my high honor and privilege to have as my guest, Captain Gene Krantz, U.S. Air Force retired, and uh, the... um, uh, what the, the 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 person who single-handedly or at least led the team that brought back Apollo 13 uh, to Earth uh, after its aborted trip to the moon, but also a flight director not only on that mission but on the Apollo 11 lunar landing, uh, which uh, brought uh, 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 the, our astronauts to the moon. Uh, Captain Krentz, welcome. Very good. Uh, a pleasure to be with you, uh, especially to, uh, is this uh, message or podcast going out to the uh, members of the Archdiocese? Yes, sir. They go out, to, our podcast goes out to the general public, uh, but okay. we uh, we link it uh, to a number of uh, uh, podcast sites, including uh, iTunes and Google Play and others, and we also put it on our website and on our Facebook page. And it's also linked to the e-newsletter that goes out once monthly. Okay, that's great. Uh, and so anyhow, you, sir, um, are a, a lifelong devout Catholic. Uh, you uh, are a recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the nation's highest honor, for, uh, civilian honor. Uh, and you had a long and um, a long career with uh, NASA. 37 years you were with NASA after you retired uh, from the Air Force. And uh, so uh, with, a, with a career as rich and uh, substantial and relevant as yours, it's hard to find a place to start. But uh, why don't we start with uh, the fact that you're a Catholic. You went to St. Louis University, which is Jesuit, correct? Yes, it is. In fact, I can, uh, I can brag a uh, great school. I was educated by the Air Science. Uh, high school, I was uh, graduated by Sisters of Mercy. I mean, powdered by the tutored by the Sister of Mercy, and basically I had Jesuits. So basically I got uh, uh, the big picture from all three. I hear you. Now, I'm a a Jesuit product myself, having graduated from Spring Hill College in Mobile, and uh, I certainly respect the Jesuits, and uh, I noted in your uh, bio that you'd gone to St. Louis University. So, um, And you uh, graduated from there with a Bachelor of Science in Aeronautical Engineering. What happened after that, sir? Well, actually, uh, basically when I graduated, my principal reason, I I grew up in a military boarding house. Uh, When my father died, uh, we needed money, and my mother uh, packed all three children and herself in one bedroom. And we lived next to the American Legion, and basically uh, we uh, basically advertised there and all throughout World War II. And even after we had the uh, military personnel from all services living in the house. So it was a great way to go up. I uh, learned an awful lot about duty, honor, country, and uh, sacrifice. And uh, it was really a marvelous education just in itself for a young pup in grade school to be with the guys fighting the war. Yes, sir, and that's where I was when the <laughs> uh, Neil Armstrong uh, landed on the moon. So, uh, if uh, may I ask you, how old are you, sir? Um, uh, right now, uh, eighty-nine. I will be uh, ninety in about another four months. 
All right, uh, 89 years old. And uh, so uh, how did you go from, uh, once you graduated from St. Louis U, uh, you joined the Air Force. Uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your career in the Air Force, what you were doing, and uh, how you uh, went from that to uh, becoming a flight director at NASA. Well, at the uh, time of living in the boarding house, I was really impressed by uh, the aviators that lived there, and I wanted to become an aviator, went through uh, Parks College. That's where I got my first few hours of flying time. I uh, received a uh, ROTC commission there and uh, began flight training down at Spence Air Base, Moultrie, Georgia, and then went through Laughlin Air Force Base. I uh, had graduated tops in the uh, in flying and was sent to the fighter weapons school, which at that time was the mecca of uh, fighter aviation. Where is that? The military service. Where is that? Uh, flew the uh, first of the I flew the F F eighty six, two versions, the eighty six F and H, and then the first of the supersonics in the F one hundred D. Through a mix-up in, uh, in assignments, I uh, should have been sent to a F-100 squadron, but I sent to an 86 squadron over in Korea, which was uh, really a uh, great opportunity. I uh, actually flew both in Korea, and we were a part of the uh, uh, support to the uh, Vietnam, I mean the Taiwanese down on the uh, island. And uh, when I came back, I was uh, assigned as a air controller for the 7th Infantry. So I got to see the uh, service in a variety of uh, forms, and it was really the aviation over there in Korea was really spectacular. Came back, I elected to go to reserve status, and I got into aircraft flight test. And for 30 months, I was a flight test engineer at a B-52. Uh, the Soviets, they believed, had developed uh, surface air missile capabilities, so my job was to develop the technologies that would allow the B-52 to uh, penetrate Soviet airspace. Uh, the program was completing and, uh, the B-52 in the uh, uh, early uh, 1960, and at that time I had the opportunity to go to Edwards Air Force Base for the F-4. Uh, fighter program, McDonald's program down there, but I saw many people leaving and going into the space program, Project Mercury. So I basically uh, sent in an application to NASA and was uh, joined. I was one of the first three members in operations of the space task group. So it was really a marvelous opportunity to take everything I'd learned about flying and running a flight test program and apply it to the development of uh, early space flight. Wow. Now, let me back up and ask you, you said you went to, you said a Mecca for uh, the kind of flying you were doing at the time. Where was that again, sir? I went to Dallas Air Force Base. It was the uh, uh, fighter weapons school. I see. All right. So and you... after that, my assignment in Korea was the 58th fighter bomber over at Osan. I see. Okay, so you're flying all these planes. You're developing a, a, what a, a defense for the BF B fifty two to a, a what penetrate Soviet airspace at the time. Well, Go yeah, ahead. Basically, our, uh, we developed a, a variety of decoy systems, and in particular, decoy missiles. Uh, we could uh, carry four of those in the bomb bay of the B fifty two, and each one of those missiles could be programmed 
fly different altitudes, air speeds, and different courses. So it was, uh, I had a infrared system that basically I had the uh, IR signature of the B-52, and I had corner reflectors, so it was a darn good system and uh, worked very well. I see. So these were decoys. In other words, if the Soviets had fired a intercontinental ballistic missile of the United States, hopefully one of these missiles would decoy it. Is that, am I drawing the correct conclusion? Basically, what we're trying to do is to decoy them away from the B-52, the real B-52, so we could get in and penetrate the Soviet airspace. I see, okay. So they, the purpose was to uh, mimic the B-52 aircraft. Similar to what the Navy uses with chaff. Yes. Yes, well, we had chaff, too. We did a little bit of everything. It was a uh, really great program, and uh, I was given the responsibility to lead the test team of the B-52, so it really set me up for moving into NASA as a uh, very young but experienced engineer, uh, knowledgeable of uh, uh, aviation, knowledgeable of maintenance of the aircraft, and basically an experimental program. So uh, that was exactly what NASA needed when I joined, because they had uh, good people capable of uh, developing the technologies, but basically once they developed it, they handed over to the military services in aircraft, and uh, they had never run the programs themselves. So this, myself, Chris Kraft, and an Englishman by the name of John Hodge were the first three uh, operator elements people responsible for operations in the uh, early space program. So you wind up in the Mercury program. Those must have been heady days when you moved over to NASA. No, I called it boot camp because it was uh, it was uh, vastly different from uh, we were going to fly an aircraft moving uh, uh, five miles per second, and our experience had been uh, aircraft flying five miles per minute. And uh, we basically uh, could communicate directly to the aircraft that we were testing, but basically now we are operating on a global basis. And we had tracking stations around the world. And basically my job as the procedures officer was to keep all the tracking stations tuned up on what we were doing and why we were doing it and give them the directions they needed to uh, change the course if that became necessary during a mission. I see. So um, this was 1960 or so when you joined Mercury? Yes. And so around about, what, 62 or so, 63, President Kennedy, uh, I don't remember which year it was, early 60s, uh, pledged to go to the moon by the end of the, the decade. Do you remember that? Oh, yes, I remember that very well. <laughs> because we were still struggling to put a, uh, a spacecraft in orbit. In fact, just prior to uh, Kennedy's speech, we had blown up our second Atlas mission, and Alan Shepard had flown, so we had a total of 20 minutes of flight experience. We'd never been to orbit, and we were directed to go to the moon. <laughs> and, of course, uh, the United States was trailing the uh, Soviet Union in space exploration at this point, correct? Yeah, we were about, uh, we guessed that our best uh, estimate was about two years behind. I see. And when did you feel like the United States had caught up with the Soviet Union? That's a, it's an interesting question. The, uh, we were now moving, we had moved into the Gemini program. We were learning to rendezvous and dock. And uh, the Soviets had actually launched 
uh, two missions in a very short interval between them, and it appeared that they were attempting to uh, rendezvous with the spacecraft, but they, they missed the join-up. And we thought, well, they had some kind of a problem on board the spacecraft. They tried the same mission again, and again they couldn't uh, rendezvous. Uh, they could not dock. And that was our first conclusion, that they were trying to do the rendezvous with technology that dated back to the sailing ship sextants and do this whole rendezvous process uh, manually using uh, very crude, crude technology on board the spacecraft. They didn't have computers on board the spacecraft. And that, I think, was our first clue that we were moving into, we had the opportunity to move into a leadership role in space. I see. You remember what year that was? That was probably about 1964, 1963, 64. I see. So the NASA began to catch up in a hurry. Yes, we uh, actually, uh, from a standpoint of the, uh, the real time that uh, we came close to catching up was when we did our first uh, extravehicular operation, uh, which we uh, did on uh, Gemini 4, and that was around uh, the... Uh, uh, June of 1965, and the Soviets had put a man out in space, and uh, basically uh, we uh, missed being the first, but we had the longest EVA at that time, and from that point on, the uh, United States space program during Project Gemini was on a roll. I see, and I suppose you could say that Sputnik, the Soviet program, was the uh, shot heard around the world, maybe? Yes, it sure was. In fact, that was uh, uh, Sputnik. That's interesting because the first Sputnik, I had just come back for a, a flight over in Japan in my fighter, and I landed and uh, at the uh, K-55 air base in Korea, and my crew chief came up and said, uh, you know, the Russians just launched a Sputnik. And I said, well, what's that? And I said, well, it's a satellite that goes beep, 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 and it's circling the Earth. And I sort of shrugged it off and basically uh, carried my parachute into operations building, and I did not know that that singular event uh, would change my uh, life's direction in just a few years. I see. No kidding. All right. Well, let's uh, fast forward up to Apollo 11. Um, What was that experience like? You were, and by the way, I should share with our listener, you're joining us from Houston. Yes. Yes. At which was actually a bit south in Houston. We uh, we when we moved into Houston, we have uh, six children, five girls, one boy, and we didn't want to raise them in the big city, so we uh, set up in a very small rural farming community. Basically, used to uh, raise cotton down here. When we uh, built our house, the uh, we had uh, uh, oyster shell streets down here, and we actually had uh, cattle roaming the streets along with burros and other animals. So. It was a neat place. We're about 10 miles south of the Space Center, but a great place to live, and we still live here. I see. Very nice. Now, uh, okay, you were at the Space Center uh, for Apollo 11. You were a flight director for Apollo 11. I mean, you, you hands-on. Yes, you right up in it. I mean, you know, uh, share with us, what was that like, the day that, uh, uh, you know, uh, Apollo 11 reached the moon and Neil Armstrong stepped off? Uh, well, yeah, everybody uh, looks at uh, Apollo 13 as really the diciest mission. But really it was uh, Apollo 11 was the toughest because I had a team that had to make split-second decisions 
We had several uh, surprises when we were trying getting ready to go down to the moon. First thing was the crew did not fully depress the tunnel or then docking. And there was pressure in the tunnel, which is like a champagne cork pop gun, and it moved our trajectory downrange what we thought was about uh, four to five miles from the landing point. Second thing was is that they made a mod modification that interfered with our communications. And third thing was they had a, a software bug that was known but not fixed because they didn't think we'd turn on the landing uh, or rendezvous radar during that period of time. And each one of these uh, could basically broke up communications at critical times. There were times I'd make decisions based on stale data. Uh, we lost our tracking data several times uh, on uh, course preparing to go down to the moon and during uh, going down to the moon. And as a result, when we came close to the landing period, the crew had to search for a landing site. We normally landed with about uh, uh, two minutes of fuel remaining. But uh, as we uh, got down close to landing, basically my controllers started counting down. They had a stopwatch in their hand, and they gave us seconds of fuel remaining. It was 60 seconds, and then 45 seconds, and then 30 seconds. And uh, about the time that they're uh, ready to uh, call out 15 seconds, we recognized the crew had just landed. So it was as close a mission we'd ever flown, and my team performed spectacularly. It was uh, an incredible group of people who made time-critical decisions based on limited and sometimes uh, guts poker data. But let's press on. Data was looking good the last time we saw it, so let's keep going. Wow. So uh, let me get this straight. We're talking about the lunar module. Is that the the right term? Or uh, the, that's the, correct. That's okay. correct. So the lunar module has only seventeen seconds left of fuel. What if the yeah. fuel had run out? What if it would just crashed onto the surface of the moon? Well, that if uh, that was that was dicey dicey condition there because at the time when we were counting down the seconds of fuel remaining. Uh, the crew had, if they wanted to abort the landing, they had to first land and then fire the abort system, which would launch the uh, ascent stage. The lunar module has two components. One component uh, stage that you use for the landing has got all the fuel. It's got the big engine. But the, uh, the lunar gravity is about one-sixth of Earth's gravity, so basically we used a relatively small engine to lift off off the moon. Uh, so if the, we basically gave the crew zero seconds remaining, they had to land at that instant and then immediately execute and abort and launch off the moon. Oh. So it was close. Wow. So when the lunar module successfully landed, what was that like? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good question because the... Uh, Everybody, the world is celebrating, but my team, we had to make decisions. Now, was it safe to stay on the moon? So we had our first, st what we call stay-no-stay -no -stay decision, landing plus uh, two minutes. Then we had another stay-no-stay -no -stay decision, landing plus eight minutes. And then we had another decision at two hours at which we would power down. So basically, while everybody's celebrating, we uh, basically, uh, during the two-minute state of stay, we had a lot of systems we had to look at. And it was only after we made the final stay decision 
that basically we could now join the world in celebrating, but even that didn't work out because we had a press conference we had to go to. <laughs> so it was after we finished the press conference, I could come back into mission control and then uh, have a cup of coffee and celebrate we had just landed in the moon. And this was three or four hours after the actual landing. Yes. Now, yes. what I remember watching that was that the uh, Neil Armstrong didn't uh, step out of the lunar module and down onto the surface of the moon until late that night, is what I remember. What, uh, it was it, about 10 o'clock, 11, 12, something like that? Yeah, it, it, was, it was late in the afternoon when we landed there. And uh, basically, uh, it takes, we waited the two minutes before we gave them the, the, the go to power down and start preparation for EVA. In fact, there was a big uh, dialogue in there because the flight surgeons thought that the crew should probably go to sleep and get some rest before they went out in the EVA. Now, nobody believed that. The crew didn't believe that. The controllers didn't believe that. I didn't believe that. So we had two teams milling around, and we had a team in case we put them to sleep and then another team in case we stepped out. So uh, it, was, uh, it was interesting period in my life. I hear you, and it was fascinating for all of us, historic, uh, of course, uh, you know, that goes without saying, and uh, I just remember uh, with my brother and father sitting up that whole night watching. Anyhow, let's move ahead to um, Apollo 13, and you were instrumental in bringing astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, and Jack Swigert back to Earth when they encountered uh, problems uh, into their flight, something like 55 hours into the flight onto the way, on the way to the moon. Now, tell me about that. What was that like? Basically, uh, it was uh, it was a shift time. We were on a three shift basis basis in mission control, and uh, I had two teams in mission control: my team and the one who was getting uh, ready to replace me. And we were getting ready to put the crew to sleep. And the last thing we do is we basically execute what we call a cryostir. Uh, the cryogenic fluids that we have there, cryogenic oxygen and hydrogen, produce the electricity for the ship. And as soon as we stirred the oxygen, we had an explosion in the tank. Now, we did not know what happened for the first couple of minutes, but basically... Uh, all of a sudden, we had a great big bang. The crew got all kinds of caution and alarms in there. Uh, they started reading off all the alarm indications they had there. At the same time, my controllers were reading off all the uh, problems that they saw in the spacecraft. So about uh, for about a three-minute period of time, we were really confusing trying to figure out what the heck went wrong. But then I got a call from my controller and says, like, uh, the crew reported a pretty big bang associated with this, and all of a sudden I moved from the, okay, we're going to solve this problem, to, hey, let's uh, tread very lightly because we got a problem. And then about another 10 minutes later, Jim Lovell called down and said, hey, I see some kind of uh, event that we're venting our oxygen, I believe. So I actually went through and over a 10-minute period of, we'll fix this problem easily, and then we better be more careful, and then all of a sudden, 10 minutes later, I was in survival mode. So it was really a question, what do we do next? Uh, fortunately, I had a trajectory controller, a flight director, right next to me. He went down and started return to Earth options. He came back with five options. Some came around the front side of the moon, other around, around the back side of the moon. I wanted time to think, so I made the decision to swing this mission around the, uh, around the moon 
which would be a three to four day trip returning. Uh, so I had to find some way to uh, turn the lunar module into a lifeboat. And the lunar module was designed to support uh, two people for two days. And now I had three people in it for uh, four days. Uh, so that was the first challenge. We also had to establish a, a maneuver to get the crew coming home. And we had about two hours to get that. So my team, I, basically, uh, I went into a emergency mode in there. Another team was actually flying the mission, but we were telling them what we needed to do. And we came up with a plan that uh, 24 hours after the explosion, my team would come back on and we'd do a, what we call a get-home-fast maneuver, cut our day after return trip, cut it from four days to three days, which made our uh, uh, problem we had in the spacecraft with resources a bit uh, more reasonable. So we got the crew on the way back home, and then we powered down to near freezing level. The crew in the spacecraft was living in, uh, in uh, basically an uh, environment about 35 to 37 degrees, very humid, and uh, they didn't have any uh, warm uh, fuzzies up there. They lived in their spacesuits, which is like living in a uh, sauna because they'd be sweating inside their suits, but the body temperature would be quite cool. Wow. Uh, so then we had to come up with a 500-item checklist to get them uh, uh, through the Earth's atmosphere down to landing. And that took the next uh, two and a half days to come up with that checklist. So basically, uh, my team was uh, pressed all the way through the mission to come up with a get-home-fast maneuver, figure out how to survive in that environment, and then build a very lengthy checklist to get the... Uh, uh, lunar module powered down, command module powered up, and uh, get in through the uh, reentry. So it was pretty close all the way. And it's a challenge trying to pack all this into a half-hour podcast, but I should mention that you, <laughs> you tell your whole story in your book, Failure is Not an Option, uh, which is available on Amazon, uh, published by Simon & Schuster, a New York Times bestseller. A Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. You can find it on Amazon. In the last couple of minutes we have, sir, uh, one question. Uh, the remarkable career you've had and the tremendous service you've paid to our country, what role did your Catholic faith play uh, in your professional life? Oh, it was the foundation. In fact, it started me, uh, started me uh, in my career because I had three nuns at Central Catholic High School who decided, I, I, my, my father died, we were very poor right around the line, and uh, they found a way to get me into the Naval Academy, but I failed the physical because I was working two jobs during high school to support my mom. And uh, they found a way to get me to college. So Toledo Central Catholic, uh, for anybody that lives in the Ohio area, we have the space room in there, and I was the one of only three civilians, non-astronauts, who got a piece of the moon. And that piece of the moon resides at Toledo uh, Central Catholic. So these nuns uh, were very instrumental in my entire life. And this has been true. In fact, it was a chaplain I had during the military service that uh, set up a picnic with a bunch of girls from another church down in Eagle Pass, and basically that's where I met my wife in a year later. 
we're married. I've been uh, Knights Columbus. I've been uh, chair of the pastoral council at the uh, church, uh, Eucharistic minister, lector, and basically I go to mass generally daily. Wow. I've been talking to Gene Krantz, a retired uh, Air Force captain, former uh, fighter pilot who became a flight director at NASA and guided Apollo 11 all the way to the moon and back and was instrumental in saving the lives of our three astronauts aboard Apollo 13 when uh, problems developed on that flight. Um, Captain Krantz, thank you so much for talking to me today. And uh, wow, what a story. I can't wait to read your book, Failure is Not an Option. Okay, and uh, Taylor, there's another one. I'm probably about three months from publishing a new book called Tough and Competent, which really talks about the team members I had. And uh, that will be out, you say, in a few months? Probably a few months. I'm in the uh, final formatting right now. Excellent. Captain Gene Krantz, thank you so much. Okay, great. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. Catholic Military Life is a podcast of the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, erected by Pope St. John Paul II in 1985 to provide for the free exercise of Catholic faith in the U.S. military, VA medical centers, and the government's civilian workforce beyond U.S. borders. 1.8 million American Catholics worldwide depend on the Archdiocese and its endorsed chaplains for pastoral care. For more information, visit millarch.org. The Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, serving those who serve serve.